Hey, welcome to episode 14 of the Dream 10X podcast. It's James and Cindy Capel here, and we are really excited to introduce our next guest. Who's our next, next guest? A man who I have heard over and over again from you, Jim Brown. Jim Brown. He's a, a legendary trimaran designer and builder who worked with Arthur Piver out in California in the late 50s, early 60s. And uh, he's a fascinating storyteller as well. And um, I found out about him by reading one of his books called Among the Multi-Holes, Volume 1, and just was really impressed with his storytelling and the way he wrote. It really resonated with me, uh, his sense of humor and, and how he told stories that just made you feel like you were there. And um, one of the things that really struck me with his storytelling and also the, the podcast that he has at outrigmedia.com and the videos that he shares there was when he built his first boat um, that was somewhat akin to Arthur Piver's Frolic 16, which was a little a bit of a modification that he built. He and his pregnant wife and a friend uh, sailed out the Golden Gate Bridge and hung a left. That's incredible. <laughs> And uh, that's just amazing to me. I don't know if I would have the cojones to do something like that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Build a boat from scratch. That's it. Thanks. My dog is chasing our cat. Um, oh, <laughs> Welcome to the Capel household. <laughs> but building a boat from scratch, that's an, ex an experimental design. And then taking it out on blue water with your pregnant wife, not knowing what in the world is going to happen. And he's got wow. a video of this experience at outrigmedia.com. And you can just see these huge rollers coming up on the stern of this homemade vessel that they're in. And I would just be terrified. Yeah. But anyway, that, that story and those, that video really captured my imagination. And uh, I ended up buying a C-Clipper 20 trimaran plan from... Uh, it was actually designed by his partner in crime, John Marple. I bought uh, the C-Clipper 20 plans from SeaRunner.com. And one of my dreams in the past was to build this boat from scratch and, and, and Cindy and I have talked about doing it, building it and taking it out sailing on the Chesapeake Bay or the Potomac one day. But that's one of those dreams I don't know if we'll get around to, but still have the plans. Um, I also, before I bought those plans, bought, um, well, I, I don't consider buying it, but I, I called up the um, Mariner Museum in Newport News, Virginia because they have an Arthur Piver archive, design archive there. And you can give them your credit card for copying fees and, and shipping. And they'll make copies of whatever Arthur Piver boat plans that they have there at the museum and they'll send them to you. And so That's I, amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. So I got um, the Piver Nugget 24 plants, which is a, a Piver design, and was able to compare those with the Sea Clipper 20 plans that I have. And it's really interesting to, to see. You can, so some of the innovations that Jim Brown talks about is the development of asynchronous amas on the bottom to help with, you know, make it more seaworthy. Mm. Um, I don't know exactly what the nautical engineering rationale behind the, those asynchronous amas are, but you can see the difference in the, how Arthur Piver designed his amas compared to uh, the Marples brown version of the the trimaran so that's kind of cool but anyway 
Um, it was great to call up Jim and have a phone conversation with him and record it and to hear him tell uh, a version of his life that I don't think anybody has heard before. If you read his book, it picks up while he's out in California uh, and after college, after getting out of college and everything. So he tells some stories on this podcast about his early childhood and how he got into boating. So it's really fascinating. Hope you enjoy. Jim Brown. So one of the things I really was interested in was finding out a little bit more about your childhood and where you grew up and your family and all that kind of stuff. And how you and, got into boating. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I've I've thought about, about uh, telling that story. I think maybe... It's the most, uh, as you would say, extraordinary part of my life was uh, when um, I was between uh, infancy and about uh, 1940. Um, I was born in 33. That was probably the worst year of the Depression. Mm. And um, it was also the worst year for uh, bank robberies and kidnapping in the, uh, back in the G-Man days. Interesting. And my dad was a G-Man. Really? Yeah, uh-huh, in that time, uh-huh. And um, my, my, my mom and fa- uh, my, my father and mother um, uh, met in Washington, D.C., uh, in, uh, I don't know, the late 1920s. And, um, my, my dad was, uh, the only one in a family of 10 to leave the Vermont farm where he came up. Hmm. And, uh, my mother was the only one in a family of eight to leave the Wyoming ranch where she came up. Wow. And, um, the reason that they both left is kind of interesting. Um, my mom uh, turned out to have a, a, a gift for shorthand. In her senior year in high school, she won the shorthand contest. It was, you know, really important at the time because we didn't have recordings. <laughs> and... Uh, and so uh, the prize for uh, uh, winning the uh, the shorthand contest from uh, the uh, I, uh, I think the Laramie Wyoming uh, High School was a job on Capitol Hill working for the Wyoming State Senator. Wow! And so, bango, you know, at, 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 at age. 17 or whatever it was, she found herself uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, working on the hill. And, um, and my dad, he came out of, uh, of a dairy farm um, uh, wanting very much to never have to milk another cow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he went off to Detroit and uh, started working on the on the auto assembly line and uh didn't take long for him to realize he didn't want to live that way forever so um 
he he uh, he joined the the um, Army Air Cadets. It was a branch of the Air Force Air Force uh, to try try to get pilots started early, mm-hmm. and that took him to Quantico, Virginia, and from there he heard about Washington. He didn't know anything about Washington, but he went went up there and and uh, was able to. Uh, enroll in uh, George Washington University and start studying law. Wow. And uh, he was looking for a job, uh, a night job, and he, he, uh, he got a, uh, a job on what they call the Capitol Police Force. It's a special law enforcement arm that guards the, the, uh, the D.C. facilities, you know, the monuments and the and uh, all, all the the government itself has a, has its own police force. They call them the Capitol cops. And he got a job on on that that force. Um, and uh, one night he was he was stationed in the rotunda. And uh, he, he had a little desk. He st- he took me as when I was fourteen. He took me to D.C. and showed me the little desk in the light where he used to sit uh, to guard the Capitol building at, at night and, uh, and study his law lessons. Sure. And uh, along about that time, he bumped into my mother. And uh, <laughs> I'm not making this up, okay? <laughs> and they got to know each other well enough so that um, that uh, mom, Ruth Brown, Ruth Leesenby was her name. She wanted to to take her boyfriend home and uh, and show him around uh, her ranch and uh, have him uh, meet her people. Uh, that, apparently, they had been to Vermont and and uh, met his people. And uh, so dad uh, dad said he he didn't have the have the time to uh, ride the train out there and back, but. Uh, but uh, hey, uh, let me see what I can do. So he went back down to Quantico, where he had been. He had learned to fly, and uh, he'd made good friends with the sergeant. And he said, uh, "Hey, Sarge, uh, I'd sure like, sure would like to borrow an airplane for a week." <laughs> <laughs> and, and so he, he loaned him a, a Jenny, which is a, a biplane, uh, a single-engine biplane trainer. It was a famously robust airplane called a Jenny. And uh, he borrowed that thing, and he and my mom flew to Wyoming. No kidding. <laughs> this thing. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that that happened on that trip was that uh, when they when they got to the ranch, uh, the, the local people figured they were going to show this Yankee what it was like to live out on a prairie, you know. And uh, they had a guy on the ranch. He had lived there for years. He was a sort of a, a, a hobo and a, track, a trapper, a sheep herder and trapper. His name was Cooney. And uh, he had had uh, loved my mother as a kid and helped her out a lot as a little kid. And so um, uh, they they got Cooney in off of his trap line to to give my dad a, a demonstration of um, of marksmanship. Uh, Cooney was the guy that always 
always won the, the trick shot contest at the Wyoming, um, uh, uh, what they call the Frontier Days, which was for a long time the biggest rodeo. Hmm. And uh, Cooney was a, a trick shot champion at the, at the uh, uh, Wyoming uh, Frontier Days, uh, Cheyenne Frontier. <laughs> and uh, Dad was amazed at what this guy could do with his with his pistol shooting from the hip, and and um, he was he was the kind of a guy. I guess he could he could shoot uh, bottles and uh, clay pigeons in the air with a rifle, which was uh, extremely unusual. That's usually done with a shotgun, you know. <laughs> Got a yeah. much better chance. So anyway, Dad went. They flew flew back. You know, I had a great time. <laughs> flew this contraption back to uh, Virginia. Went went back to their jobs. And uh, one night late, my dad was sitting at his little desk there, and he uh, the Senate offices used to be in uh, in those hallways that lead off from the rotunda. Um, all the Senate officers offices used to be there. They now have a special building for them. I think some of these senators still still have their offices offices in the uh, in the Capitol, uh, right off of the dome. But um, at that time, uh, anyway, Dad was uh, sitting there, you know, studying law and cleaning his pistol and all that stuff, <laughs> and. Uh, and he heard a couple of senators down the hall late at night talking, and uh, he he couldn't help but overhear them, and they were uh, really disturbed by what was was happening in the Chicago era area. Um, apparently, when prohibition was repealed, it had been recently repealed. This was probably about uh, 1931 or so. I can't remember just when it was repealed. I think in 32. I can't remember. But um, when Prohibition was repealed, uh, there were a lot of people that were making a very good living on bootlegging and the associated trades, uh, distribution and so on. And when uh, when the, the law was repealed, all of a sudden, there were a lot of people who were accustomed to living the high life who were out of work. And uh, the economy was really crashing. And they really didn't have any any choice, in their view, but to turn to crime. And so that's when we started having um, uh, the uh, the bank robbers, particularly John Dillinger, and uh, and other uh, other gangs uh, that were usually small gangs, um, uh, a few of them operated alone. Um, but uh, it, it was it was a, a bad time, and and the senators were talking about it, saying, you know those those crooks, they uh, they've got they got better cars and better guns than our boys have. Mm. And when he said our boys, this was they were he was speaking of the the federal uh, I can't remember the original name. I think they called it the National Bureau of Investigation. And uh, it would sur- it was soon turned to the FBI. 
But uh, anyway, um, Dad heard these guys talking about how the the, uh, the the gangsters had better guns and better cars, and they and they really knew how to shoot these. They were losing people, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> so my uh, my dad said, that, and they were they were talking about we got to find somebody who can sh- show these guys how to shoot. And we got to get the money so they can buy better cars. This is right about the time when the when the Ford V8, the the flathead Ford V8, came along. With stuff. It was the the first car that you could really push. You know, you could really wind it up and it wouldn't fly apart. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so uh, they they figured they had to uh, to do something about law enforcement on a federal level. These were crimes that were crossing state lines. And uh, and so my dad overheard this conversation. He walked into the office and he said, "Excuse me, gentlemen, I couldn't help but overhear you. I think I know somebody to teach your boys how to shoot." <laughs> no way. <laughs> and uh, they said, "Oh, yeah." And so dad told him about Kumi. <laughs> and uh, so the next day they sent a telegram off to the ranch in, in Wyoming, which was a real cattle ranch. Incidentally, my mom came from a spread that was 22,000 acres. Wow. Of uh, high plains, treeless plains, prairie grass, you know, the best grass for, for bovine animals. Uh, the buffalo herds lived on that stuff. And so anyway, um, uh, <laughs> My mother told him, told him to put in the telegram to be sure to get the lice out of Cooney's eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> and so they cleaned him up and uh, put him, uh, you know, got him some clothes and put him on a train for Washington. Wow. And uh, they, uh, I'll be darned, uh, there's a story that, there's, there's a story here that nobody's going to believe, so I won't tell it, but the long and the short of it was that, uh, that Cooney got himself a job as a as a as a trainer for the new FBI. Oh wow. my gosh, I love that. And uh, the senators said, uh, "Well, gee, Ralph, my dad's name was Ralph. Uh, uh, wh- wh- what do you want out of this?" <laughs> and Ralph said, "Well, I'd like to have a job with this outfit." Huh. And so um, uh, he, you know, at that time, even at that time, you had to have a law degree degree in order to to get into the uh, federal police force. And so um, my dad went off to uh, South Dakota, where apparently it was a pretty easy exam to pass the bar. <laughs> and uh, he was far from finished at law school, but he, he, he came back and, uh, and he had a law degree from South Dakota. And so they put him <laughs> on the force. And uh, and so he went to work, and of course uh, it was very dangerous work. He had a an extremely uh, uh, a distinguished uh, career in the FBI. He was in on uh, bringing down uh, several of the real gangsters. He was there the night they they uh, they they got Dillinger as he was coming out of that theater with his arm around two women, arms around two women. Uh, um, and he uh, was in on the uh, uh, Pretty Boy Floyd shootout, 
and uh, the Barker Gang, Dang. and um, Babyface Nelson. Wow. Um, he was not in on the. He became a kidnap expert, but he was not in on the Lindbergh kidnapping. But he was in on several others that were famous at the time. And um, uh, he did that uh, up until about 1938 or 39. Um, and during that time, um, my, uh, my, my mom and dad were, were uh, very afraid for me and my little brother because it turned out that the underworld was going after the families of mm. the agents, the agents that had families. And he was one that did. By that time, uh, uh, they had uh, two little kids, you know. And so uh, the best thing they could do, well, there was an intervening problem. Mom had a terrible, they, the two of them had a terrible automobile accident. Mm. And uh, my, my mom was away uh, recovering for about a year and um and but dad had to go back to work he went up against the steering wheel and it stopped him it broke all his ribs but he recovered from that and but mom went went through the front windshield and out onto the highway mm. it was a head-on smack up from uh, some drunk passing on a hill Ugh. and um and so uh all they could do for us was to uh pen us off on their people. And so my brother and I went back and forth several times between the Wyoming ranch and the Vermont farm as little kids. And we were definitely well loved and well cared for. There was no problem. We didn't, we didn't know anything about it at the time, but we certainly experienced something of what I suppose they call parental abandonment at the time. Mm. But, uh, uh, it was uh, it was uh, basically a good scene. We all came out of it okay, and um, uh, my dad was offered a job in in uh, in Manhattan, working for a public relations outfit, one of the first that um, uh, was in the business of trying to keep chain stores uh, out of antitrust trouble. And so um, uh, he he ended up uh, working for several large chains. He was uh, for a while. He was uh, vice. Much later, he was vice president of uh, J.C. Penney and Safeway and outfits like that, in, in charge of public relations. And um, and uh, my mom, who never fully recovered from the accident, was uh, uh, just great. We and, and we ha we were living on Long Island. We ha I had a upper middle class upbringing for a while there. It was really uh, uh, quite good. And and um, uh, I I went off. Uh, uh, well, my brother and I were both juvenile delinquents. We got ourselves <laughs> in real trouble and. And uh, the judge said to my dad, okay, okay, so you're ex-FBI, all right, okay, if you don't send them away to school, I will. And so my brother and I got shipped off to a boarding school in Connecticut, and um, and we came out of that, uh, uh, you know, hole somehow. And then um, uh, I went on, I went on for a couple of years at Dartmouth. 
and uh, I, I didn't last because uh, I've always had eye trouble, you guys. I, I should explain now that uh, I can't see for beans, and even back then I couldn't read well enough to uh, to keep up with the assignments. So I flunked wow. out of Dartmouth, went down to Miami, got myself a job on a boat, and it's been one damn boat after another ever since. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's an interesting. incredible story. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Even the part about the journey. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, incidentally, I have a snapshot of me as a little tyke sitting on J. Edgar Hoover's knee. You know. So wow. There's something to be said for all of that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's incredible. How have you lived such an amazing life? I'll tell you. Well, it, I didn't have anything to do with it, but it, it happened. You know, that's that's the way it it, it worked out. Um, uh, there's a, there's another angle to it that I kind of like, um, and I may have put put this in one of my podcasts. I can't remember. Uh, while we were staying uh, on that ranch in Wyoming, I was about four, I think. Uh, three or four years old. Um, my, uh, we were staying with my uncle Bob Panos, P-A-N-O-S, and and uh, and uh, and Aunt Lou, uh, my mother's sister Lou, and um, uh, we were just uh, within walking distance of the main ranch house, although there was a hill between us, and. Um, the, the 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 ranch was located on a rail line that connected Cheyenne to Denver, a north-south uh, hookup between the Union Pacific and the Northern Pacific. <laughs> and uh, the trains used to come by right right by this place, just on the other side of the road where I was living as a little kid. You could hear the trains hauling their way up. This is right on the on the edge of the Continental Divide. Okay, huh. and. Uh, 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 the Great Basin up there. That's Great Basin territory. And and so uh, <laughs> uh, these trains, had, would uh, you could hear them coming from miles, hauling up out of the canyons, you know, long trains going from, from, from uh, one cross-continent link to another. And uh, uh, they, they'd stop there at this little siding called Red Buttes, um, where uh, there was a a big windmill that pumped water out of out of a, out of a good good a huge well apparently a great aquifer, um, and the windmill was used to fill up a tank that was built on a on a a little uh, uh, trestle over the tracks, and so the trains could pull in underneath the water tank. Uh, and uh, and fill up. They were steam trains, so they had to fill up with water. And this was a water stop for that that rail line. And um, and I used to love to watch the trains. And of course, people were always in the summertime riding with the windows open, and they'd gab with the kid. I'd, I had my own horse at age three. You know, <laughs> oh, <wow>. this thing. You know, <laughs> talking to these people. <laughs> and. Uh, and so uh, the, the windmill, 
uh, was uh, really pumping out water, and it, they had more than they could use, so they they ran it through a, 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 a what we called an irrigation ditch over to a pond. There was a large, shallow pond that the railroad had dug for the water to end up in the overflow. And uh, so the the, uh, the irrigation ditch led into the into the pond. And um, one thing my uncle Bob was doing for us at night was uh, was reading to us. He had his own work to do on the ranch, but he was great. He he was reading stories to me and my little brother at night. And one of the stories they were reading was the Swiss Family Robinson. Mm. And um, and uh, it was a beautiful. Book. I think the book is probably still around. I would love to see the uh, the pen and ink illustrations in this particular edition of the Swiss Family Robinson. Somebody had done a marvelous job of uh, ink line, uh, you know, line drawings to illustrate the book. And the story somehow really captivated me. This this family marooned on an island, and the only way they could get out of there was to build their own boat and sail away. Hmm. And they had uh, sketches, fanciful sketches of of uh, of uh, these people building this boat, and so of course I started bugging my aunt for for, for a boat. I wanted a model boat that I could play with in the irrigation ditch. <laughs> And so my aunt went to my uncle and said, hey, this boy wants a model boat. <laughs> and and uh, Bob said, I can remember him saying, a boat here? Why, Lou, I ain't got no boat here, you know. <laughs> she bugged him enough to take a chunk of two-by-four and cut a point on it and, and give it to me. And so I was down there in the irrigation. How come that kid's always coming in sopping wet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I was just fascinated with this this boat, the whole boat idea. We eventually put a mast in that thing. It was just a, a like a dowel rod. This thing was, I don't know, it was only maybe a, a foot or 15 inches long or something like that. And, oh, um, my uncle let me use his block plane. And I planed on that thing until my hands were sore. <laughs> cleaned it all up, you know, it was really quite a dynamic thing. The more I planed on it, the better it seemed to like the current in the irrigation ditch. You know? uh. And uh, and so, so we, we put a, a, a mast on it, and we, we didn't have a, a sail. Uh, we were looking at the sketch in a book, you know, and and my aunt got this idea, and she went and got her college no her high school diploma which was printed on parchment mm. and we poked a couple of holes in that thing and poked the mast through the oh, holes so the thing would burrow out in front of the boat like a square sail you know it didn't have any yards on it it was stiff enough the part the paper was stiff enough that uh, the thing would stand as a sail and and, you know, of course, I went down to the pond with it, and, of course, it, 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 the wind would just blow it over instantly. I couldn't get it to go anywhere. I said, we need a rudder. <laughs> and and, uh, and so my, uh, my aunt 
uh, I remember my aunt and uncle talking about it as a rudder. Well, we've got a rudder. <laughs> a rudder is one of the most uh, uh, significant advances in all of marine architecture. You know, the uh, the vertically vertical access articulating rudder uh, was relatively late in uh, marine architecture. Um, and uh, and the, the way they figured out to do it was that uh, uh, Aunt Lou went and got a very small can of chili peppers. They had a, a hired hand at times who was a Mexican, and and uh, and she she emptied out these peppers and and kept them for something I don't know, uh, and uh, took the, both the top and the bottom out of the can with the can openers, and. My uncle squashed it flat on the floor with his cowboy boot, you know, <laughs> and uh, made a saw cut in the stern of this chunk of two by four and was able to slide the can into the saw cut and it stuck out the bottom and he could bend it so as to make the boat steer one way or the other. <laughs> wow. And uh, and we we took that thing down to the pond and and I'll be darned we got it to go downwind across the pond, <laughs> and uh, the the pond was was shallow enough that uh, I couldn't get hurt in it. Uh, uh, I didn't like to to wade all the way across it because it was cold. But we oh we had a horse too. We had this my 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 uncle's wonderful horse. Uh, I, I, his pride possession was a was a nice horse, you know. If you had a nice boat or a nice car, it was his horse, boy, big deal. And uh, his name was King, and uh, and the horse was very interested in this sailing boat. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd go along, you know, wading through the pond, splashity splash, and <laughs> and he'd put his nose down there and snort on the thing, <laughs> and it would go a little more and so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I played with that thing, you know, to sail across the pond and whoopee, you know, and I'd run around the pond and and get it and bring it back up to the upwind side and, and do it again, you know. And one day I, I was down there with the thing, and uh, I guess it was approaching fall or something. The wind changed. It blew it down the pond, down the length of the pond, and it went over the spillway at the end. And we never found that. <laughs> I don't know what in the world would happen to it because it it looked like it would just you know stop somewhere down there, but we were never able to find that thing. And I've I've looked for it in uh, on the beaches of the world. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it could have gone either to the Atlantic or the Pacific. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's how I started my career in marine architecture. Oh man, what a, just, that's an awesome story! And and I think from what I've seen, what I've seen of you in your videos and and listened to you, you've got this childlike fascination that you've never lost with boats, and that's kind of how you've continued to innovate um, with boats, from from my perception. Well, I I appreciate you using the word childlike. Um, uh, because I, I think there there is uh, something to it. The thing about a, a kid is that he doesn't know what can't be done. Yeah. And um, 
So uh, I said, tell you what I'm doing now. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> um, I'm uh, I'm 87 years old and uh, a little more than half blind. And I'm building a tiny house that is to go onto my Windrider 17. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, I was out for a sale. Um, I, I have a, uh, and in the event that your your uh, listeners don't know what a Windrider is, it's a, a plastic trimaran. It's uh, it's like those those plastic kayaks that are made out of polyethylene, garbage can plastic. And um, they're made by the, the process they call roto molding or rotational molding. Um, and uh, the polyethylene is not especially lightweight, but it is a wonderfully resilient. It takes a tremendous amount of punishment without complaint. And, uh, and it's also cheap. Once you, if you figure you're going to sell a lot of them, and once you've paid for the tooling, and in the case of the windrider, the, uh, the 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 tool, pardon me, the tooling costs costs something like uh, half a million dollars. But uh, once you've got the tooling, the boats are really inexpensive to produce, and so the challenge becomes marketing, and uh, uh, it's uh, uh, working with the outfit they call wilderness systems they used to their original name was wilderness system wilderness systems kayaks down in uh, greensboro north carolina um that's the only manufacturer that i've ever worked with otherwise my boats have always been built by their owners <clears throat> and uh, believe me it's a lot easier to work with owner builders than it is with a manufacturer <laughs> um because there are so many considerations that I knew nothing about, you know, uh, uh, particularly cost, uh, cost and and marketing considerations. Oh. So you have to be, uh, um, you, you you cannot be pure if you're going to work with a manufacturer. You you have to let them uh, um, beat it into you that uh, the boat's going to come out to be theirs as much as it is yours and. <laughs> So it's been quite an experience. The uh, the honcho in that that company is a guy named Andy Zimmerman, with whom I'm still dear friends. And uh, but uh, we've had a lot of time standing toe to toe with each other over the windrider, <laughs> and it's a a 17 foot trailerable trimaran that uh, has two cockpits. Uh, uh, in in a midships area, there's a, a cockpit that's uh, about uh, four and a half feet long, um, uh, but that's in between the cross beams. And then aft of the after cross beam, there's another cockpit, and uh, it's a very different than a, than a beach cat or or um, than uh, most uh, small uh, racing trailerable multi-hulls. This one, you sit down in like you sit in a kayak. And uh, in the case of the Windrider 17, there are two sizes, a 16 and a 17. But in the 17, which is what we're talking about here, it has uh, the after cockpit for the, for the pilot. You can't call him a helmsman because he steers with his feet. 
and um, their foot pedal steering in the after cockpit, and that leaves both hands free for handling the sails. So it's a distinctly different sailing ergonomic. Um, most small boats, um, you have to have one hand on the tiller and the other hand for the sheet, and you can't pull on a sheet with one hand. You got to, And so you end up putting the sheet in your teeth, and so you'll have both hands for you or something. And, uh, and so um, this Windrider has this big main cockpit, which um, is uh, deep enough. It's about uh, 15 inches below what you'd call deck level in between the two cross beams. And so this tiny house uh, uh, sits on top of the cross beams and in the, in the open sailing uh, geometry, that is when she's not telescoped in for trailering, she's uh, 12 feet wide. So uh, this tiny house is, uh, is going to overlap the cross beams fore and aft a little bit. It'll hang out forward of the forward cross beam a bit, uh, and uh, just a little bit aft of the after cross beam, which is a distance of eight feet. So it's eight feet fore and aft and 10 feet laterally or athwartships. So it's, I'm starting out with an eight by 10 foot floor plan, which is not bad for a tiny house. Yeah. And uh, I've had a lot of fun designing it. Um, <clears throat> The uh, the crux of it is that when you're down in there, sitting on the bunk, there's a bunk on each side of a footwell, and the footwell is the central cockpit. Hmm. And it's the footwell or the cockpit that makes it happen. That is, you can sit there on the bunk and put your feet down into the central hull, which you can't do in a catamaran, <clears throat> right? Because there's no central hull. So it's a very different ergonomic, and um, and it makes the tiny house thing happen. Are we still connected? Yes. Yes. Okay. Good. It it uh, it makes the tiny house thing happen. You can sit on either side of the cockpit on a bunk, and put your feet down into a footwell and have a table that would be uh, about two feet by three feet table, a generous tabletop. It would be a fixed position at the forward end of this footwell. And um, <clears throat> one side will be the permanent bunk. The uh, the other side will be a temporary bunk that has to be brought out or blown up or whatever it is, maybe an air mattress or something, because it fits over the utility area. Uh, there's, plenty, there's plenty of counter space for storing all your stuff, and you'd have to push it out of the way, put it down in the hull, either forward or aft, but the idea, you could make a bunk on, on, the, on the side opposite the permanent bunk, but underneath that temporary bunk, on that level of the floor on one side, uh, the thing will have uh, w w what we call a multi-purpose orifice. Have you ever heard that nautical term? <laughs> a multi-purpose orifice is the thing that happens primarily in, in trimarans 
it's a uh, it also ha they they have them in in catamarans too in larger catamarans it's a a hole in the underwing uh, the 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 panel that uh, forms the bridge between the hulls um in a catamaran or in the wing of a trimaran out from the main hull the underwing panel uh, can be uh, cut out to form a a generous hole, and that becomes the head. Huh. You can sit on it and ablute directly into the ocean. <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, what we've we've done before is uh, is uh, uh, cut the hole of a size that uh, will will fit a large stainless steel mixing bowl. And so you can also use it as the kitchen sink. Huh. That is, uh, you can drop the bowl in the hole, and when you wash the dishes or whatever you're doing, uh, when, you, when you want to uh, dump out the dishwater, you just invert the bowl. Or you can set the bowl aside and, and use it as a head. Now, of course, there's, uh, there's uh, 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 solid, solid waste and, uh, and liquid waste. Uh, the, the, the urine is the problem because it's... For a man, it becomes a problem because it's the ergonomics are bad for getting your feet up close enough to the bowl, so it's hard to pee out of this thing. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, what uh, Phil Weld uh, did in in his boat, the uh, sixty foot uh, ocean racing trimaran called Rogue Wave, designed by Dick Newick. Uh, marvelous perhaps the most marvelous vessel i've ever sailed in um and phil i still i think is still probably the most venerated of american uh multi-hull sailors um uh he had a little sign over his multi-purpose orifice that said gentlemen will please be seated <laughs> which is uh, to prevent trying to pee out of the thing standing up. You know? <laughs> and so uh, my tiny house will have that multi-purpose orifice. And, uh, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with the windows right now. But uh, I think it's going to be a great place to just hang out. It, it, it will, uh, of course, completely... Uh, uh, eliminate the uh, sailing properties of the boat. I have to take the rig out of the boat, but otherwise it won't modify the vessel in any way. It could be put back into sailing trim at any time. But I've decided to stop sailing it myself, folks. Um, uh, I've enjoyed that boat tremendously here for 15 years. Uh, I uh, We live on the water. It's one of those little little, uh, what they call drowned rivers that come up out of the Chesapeake. And uh, they, these are uh, river channels that were cut by the meltwater. They, they run off from the last uh, deglaciation. And uh, now that the glacier's gone, there's no real runoff in them. So the tectonic plate has settled enough to allow the sea to flood into these little river valleys. And uh, so we live on, on one of those, and um, it's very shallow now. It's silted in uh, terribly since agriculture. Hmm. But um, 
it uh, it's deep enough to operate a wind rider, which only needs 16 inches of water. And and uh, uh, so I've enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed sailing it uh, for a long time here. But uh, because of my eyesight, I've been feeling insecure in the thing. And uh, sure as heck, the other day I I darn near had a collision with a powerboat, mm. and um, uh, I've been trying to stay off the river on the weekends when there's other boats out there. But it was such a nice sailing day, and we haven't had any good sailing this winter up and up until late September. And uh, and so I was out out sailing on a weekend when I shouldn't have been there, and. Uh, had a close call with a powerboat. Um, the guy in the powerboat didn't seem to mind. He was crossing my bow, and he knew he could get there because I was a sailboat. You know, I should be plodding along. But he's, you know, most people are still not really aware of a sailboat that can go from a dead stop to 15 knots in two or three boat lengths, you know. <laughs> They're not not expecting that. So this guy was motoring across my bow, and and uh, the, th- the thing is that I didn't see him. Um, he, when he went by, I hollered at him, sorry, you know. <laughs> and he hollered, hi, no, it's okay, you know. It was okay with him, but it, it was a real red flag for me, you know. It was the same kind of red flag that that uh, finally brought me to my knees where I had to give up driving, which happened like 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, and so if I'm, if I'm not going to going to sail my wind rider if there's anything that comes close to the pleasures of sailing it is hanging out in an anchorage oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and we have a nice anchorage right in front of the house <laughs> at a mooring and um so uh, i'm i'm building a little hovel to fit onto my my wind rider and i'm going to use it for just hanging out you know yeah, so I guess this is kind of replacing your uh, scrimshaw hangout. Yes, yes, scrimshaw's scrimshaw's been gone for about seven or eight years now. She's yeah. she's down in Florida, and uh, she's doing okay. Um, I sold her to a guy who never used her, uh, who sold her to a good friend of mine, a guy named Bruce Matlack. And Bruce is an old windsurfing champion. You might like to talk to him. Bruce? Um, What's his last name? He's had quite a life. Um, but he he bought Scrimshaw, and he doesn't seem to mind spending money on it, you know. So she's okay. He's upgraded her, definitely. She's she's doing fine. Uh, I miss her terribly. Uh, even if I couldn't sail her anymore, I'd love to have her out on the mooring. So every now and then I could just hop in the kayak and paddle out there and take a nap or whatever, you know? Right. Are and you, so, uh, you going to post any pictures of your tiny house that you're working on? Oh, yes. I'll, I'll try to document it while I'm building it. I don't know that anybody else would want one. You'd have to be in a peculiar position like I am in order to want, <laughs> want one, you know? Um, but, uh, uh, oh yeah, but it'll be a while. It'll take me all winter to build this thing. I think yeah. it's it's built it. like a boat. Uh, I've been very fortunate to get some wonderful materials. Um, uh, uh, our friend John Harris, who uh, is the guy that runs Chesapeake Light Craft, it's a, a kayak and canoe kit manufacturer. 
up in Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, John, John's a good friend, and he stocks this plywood that's made out of a wood, they, a species called okume, O-K-O-U-M-E. <laughs> it's a it's an African um, uh, tropical softwood, and um, uh, it makes wonderful plywood. It's it made mostly in Europe, but particularly in Israel. And uh, he uses it exclusively for manufacturing his kits. Mm. And um, my son uh, Russell, um, who uh, is now <laughs> going on sixty years old is uh, out at Port Townsend, Washington, and he also manufactures kits. And uh, so they use this Akume plywood. It's uh, it's expensive and kind of hard to get sometimes, but John Harris stocks it. And uh, he was kind enough to give me a very generous price on 12 sheets of this stuff. And uh, I've just now got it pre-coated with epoxy. I decided to pre-coat everything before even starting on the, on cutting cutting out the project and then um, uh, my son Russell uh, well uh, Harris also but but Russell sells epoxy as part of his boat kit operation um, and uh, and has a very good relationship with the Gujon brothers outfit there in Bay City Michigan that make the West system epoxy, mm, okay, and um, and uh, and so um, uh, Russell was uh, kind enough to uh, order my my epoxy at his price, and so so far I have I don't know <laughs> just the materials I'm up toward probably probably pushing thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars for this this little little hovel you know it's. <laughs> unreasonable thing to do it's a, it's the nuttiest thing i think i've ever done with a boat but i i, I don't know uh, and i don't know why i'm doing it to tell you the truth I, I i i really don't know why i'm so drawn to do this with the boat um part of it is uh, is the design uh I've, I've been really challenged by the, the design of the house and um and and I've had a lot of fun thinking about it, and I've even tried to draw. I haven't tried to draw anything in years, but I I got drawing. If I if I go quarter size, you know, a quarter of an inch to the inch, I can I can uh, or what is it, three inches to the foot, uh, large scale drawing. I can sort of see what I'm doing, and um, and. So I've 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 sort of drawn it out. Nobody else can read the drawing, but uh, um, and I couldn't I wouldn't dare publish it. It's full of hand tracks, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm I'm hoping that that I'll be able to uh, to document the project with a with a camera. So in case somebody else wants to do this with a wind rider, uh, they 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 can. But the thing is, it'll be heavy enough. It'll sort of be heavy enough so that y you couldn't really sail the boat. You might be able to push it around with an outboard motor. Um, we have sailed the boat with that much weight on it at times. Um, the Windrider 17 has uh, has uh, uh, has been around. Um, we've been to sea with these boats. 
um, my uh, late great friend Joe Hudson and I and uh, two of our friends um, uh, sailed a couple of Windriders down the California seaboard along that big Sur coast and uh, had to shoot the surf to land and camp on the beaches, beaches that were other, otherwise inaccessible to anybody that was not a rock climber. It's a, a amazing territory, but Joe Hudson had lived down there all his life, and he knew the landowners, so we were able to get permission to land on these beaches, and uh, we just had a, a tremendous time. We also learned our lessons the hard way of trying to come and go through the surf with a with a trimaran. But anyway, uh, and and then we uh, we took him down to Baja. In fact, we went to Baja about four times with Windriders. And um, just had a tremendous time with him in the Sea of Cortez, um, sailing all the way down from uh, the, the, uh, almost the full length of of the Baja Peninsula. Wow! In these uh, in these little uh, beach camping all the way, you know, beach uh-huh. camping is really a great way to sail. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, if people knew how much fun beach camping was, they wouldn't do all these dumb ocean crossings. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because I wanted to ask you what um, about um, what which model of your Sea Clipper or Sea Runner or both would you recommend for the lowest barrier to entry for seafaring, and what route would you think would be a good route for that? For that? Oh, to, uh, oh, I see. What boat and what route? Well. Um, I think as a minimum, I would consider a John Marple's design. He has a whole series of boats that we call Sea Clipper, not Sea Runner. They are uh, much simpler to build, much cheaper to build, and um, they're definitely uh, seagoing boats. Uh, They're not as roomy as the Sea Runner's. And certainly not as roomy as uh, the modern catamarans are required to be by their their um, uh, naive owners who are looking for a domicile instead of a vehicle. If you really want to go out on the big briny, you want a vehicle, not a domicile. And um, and the Sea Clipper 28 is just on the upper fringes of being able to, able to trailer it. You can, you, it'd be easy to haul it to the West Coast if you had had a good towing vehicle. <clears throat> um, the Sea Clipper 28, and then uh, you could sail it through New Zealand. You could sail that boat anywhere. Really? If you know what you're doing. But doing that kind of stuff, you got to have your act together. You know, James, uh, uh, it, it's a big mistake to push out onto the onto the ocean uh, without being well prepared, and it's so hard for adults to start into sailing. It's so much easier for a kid. You learn so much faster when you're a kid. Yeah. You can feel things better. You can tell what's happening so much better. It seems without talking about it, you just feel it. You know. Uh-huh. And so uh, for for beginning sailors, uh, I've always recommended that my clients, even if they were building a, you know, a 60-footer, I said, build the dinghy first and learn how to sail it. Right. <laughs> you know, nobody takes that advice. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and uh, and then uh, as to a route, well, uh, uh, things have changed so much since we did our cruising, um, and uh, and it's uh, with with the contagion raging now. I I'm not sure I can r- recommend any place to go except far north. Um, if I was starting from the Chesapeake here. I would consider uh, uh, leaving here in uh, April and uh, <clears throat> uh, making it uh, up as far as Labrador by yeah. the first week in August and okay. uh, hanging around for two or three week two or three weeks visiting those so-called outports in Labrador where. There is uh, no roads and uh, and uh, the, uh, boat only access to some of these villages that are still occupied by people that the government wishes would move inland because it costs the government a lot of money to keep them afloat. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, it's just fabulous territory. In fact, we've had our wind rider up as far as Newfoundland. We just love Newfoundland. Um, with uh, with uh, trailering our wind rider sixteen up there, hmm. and um, it's a very brief season. The best of it is only six weeks long, and the wise thing to do would take, be to take the boat up there one year and leave it over winter and go back and get it and bring it back the next year. Oh wow! So you had enough time. Uh, uh, had enough time up there. Otherwise, you'd have to race up there and then get the hell out. You gotta get <laughs> south of Cape Cod by uh, by. Well, actually, uh, unless you're used to sailing in cold water, there's a big difference between cold water sailing and warm water sailing. And unless your your boat is is uh, is fit for it. And you're fit for it. You really ought to be south of Cape Cod by the end of September. <clears throat> okay. And uh, on the west coast, that means uh, he- headed up, he- heading up for Alaska. Um, it would uh, be a great trip to follow the route of that race they call the R2AK. Have you heard of the race to Alaska? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, it it starts at Port. Townsend, Washington, which is out on the Olympic Peninsula, straight west of Seattle. And it starts there, and the first lap of the course goes up to Vancouver, B.C. Did I say that right? Am I saying it? Is it Vancouver? Um, British Columbia, yeah. Uh, Yes. and and, uh, and any boat of any description that can make it to Vancouver is qualified to make it to, to, to attempt the rest of the course, which goes 750 miles up to um, uh, Camp Chack. No, what do you what do they call it? Ketchikan, Alaska. Um, wow, that does sound great. That that trip is is really a, an amazing boat ride but it's also demanding <clears throat> uh it goes up to a lot of inside water you're well protected for much of the trip i think there's only something like 90 miles of it that's open sea 
<clears throat> but it runs up through that this, what they call the Straits of Georgia uh, from uh, from the uh, the Straits of of Juan de Fuca, which lead into Seattle. You go up inside of Vancouver Island, and then uh, and, and that water is, I mean, lots of islands and lots of wildlife, you know, bears on the beach and <laughs> and killer whales going by and roaring tidal currents and very light winds in the summertime, very challenging sailing. Mm. <clears throat> then you go outside for 90 miles and, and then back inside through uh, more of the same narrow, long, narrow channels, glacier-carved channels, you know. Uh, lots of places to stop um, and uh, and w- wonderful places to stop if you're cruising. But the race uh, can be won by, it can, it, can, it can be run by any human or nature, nature wind-powered vessel. Human power and wind power are the only permitted propulsive forces. Huh. And that means that Guys do it in stand-up paddle boards. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they also do it in some big, powerful racing multi-hulls, which are the ones that usually win, win the race. But uh, Ketchikan is only part way to Alaska. You know, that's southeast Alaska. There's a long way to go yet if you want to go on up into some of the most fascinating water and people and scenery in the world i mean just jesus alaska is incredible and uh again leave the boat and go back and get it again the next year so you don't have to rush you know yeah those i guess that's what i would do for now um of course uh leaving from either either coast uh, uh let's say if we were here in virginia or florida or someplace like that um we just loved the Western Caribbean, the, the Central America side, mm. but um, I think it's it's uh, Mexico in particular and Guatemala was our favorite, but mm. uh, there's it, it, it's it's hard times in those countries now, you know it's pathetic really, and uh, then on down to Panama, uh, that whole Western side of the Caribbean has a lot to recommend it. Uh, in in ordinary times, um, Panama we found Panama to be a fantastic place to for, to have a boat. Um, there's there's five different places to sail in Panama. <laughs> uh, the isthmus runs east and west there, James. The the Panama Canal actually runs more north and south, huh. and um, in fact, it even runs a little bit northwest southeast the canal itself and when we were there there was a such thing as a canal zone and that taking your boat through the panama canal is the most fantastic one day boat ride anybody could ever have anywhere <laughs> as far as i know it's just an I incredible experience i love listening to your podcast describing your journey through that through the canal oh uh, yeah <laughs> yeah uh, we have the distinction of running out of gas in the Panama Canal, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then there's uh, uh, there's uh, e- e- Eastern and Western Panama on both oceans, and they're all distinctly different territories. 
very different on both sides of the of the isthmus. Uh, uh, lots of uh, different uh, places and different people. Um, and uh, best known, I guess, is on the on the north shore of Panama and off toward the east, going off toward Colombia on the Caribbean side, the coast, that coast runs east and west. And uh, you've got uh, just 50 miles from Panama, you get into those islands they call the San Blas, S-A-N-B-L-A-S islands that are inhabited by a, a, a remarkable indigenous tribe. They call themselves the Kuna people, C-U-N-A. And um, they uh, are, are um, as 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 close to uh, uh, a really uh, uh, so-called uh, wild, self-sustaining people as you'll find. That coast along there, they also call that the Darien Coast, and it's the last piece of of the Americas that uh, does not have a Pan-American highway. It just they put one through there once and it all caved in and they can't get it back. It's an incredible, um, jungly, swampy, mountainy place. <clears throat> and these Kuna people live on a archipelago of islands that are strung along that coast. And uh, they're, they're really interesting indigenous people and very, very open to outsiders, but no male from outside is allowed to spend the night on the islands. Hmm. They consider themselves to be the last pure race of people on earth. Uh. And uh, the men can leave and go to work in the canal zone or what, what used to be the canal zone. They're, the men can leave, but the women can't leave. If they do, they can't come back. Wow. <clears throat> because they, they, uh, they, they want to preserve their, uh, their early Arawak Amerindian heritage. Interesting. And uh, then Colombia. Oh, God, we love Colombia. Cartagena was our favorite seaport. Huh. Um, and then on uh, on the west side, uh, of course, uh, there's there's Baja. Let me say that I've I've heard cruising people say more than once. I've heard people go to Baja and then sail around the world. And come back and say, we wish we'd stayed in Baja the whole time. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I've heard cruising people say the same thing of the Bahamas. And uh, uh, there's just no doubt that uh, those, those are two of the best places on the face of the earth to sail. Awesome. And for just plain sailing, it's just like, you know, to get the wind to push the boat, uh, uh, the best sailing in the world is the, the Lesser Antilles, that is the far eastern Caribbean islands out there from, um, well, uh, from, from, from Cuba all, all the way down to Venezuela. That whole string of islands runs more or less north and south, and the, the, uh, the wind blows uh, more or less east to west, and so you've got to reach in both directions. <laughs> And you can practically see one island from another much of the time. Uh-huh. And so that's why there's so much chartering that goes on down there. The water's warm. It's gin clear. 
<clears throat> there used to be a lot of sea life. There isn't any more. Uh, America, I mean, uh, global fish stocks are down about 60% since 1947. Wow. Um, and that's recent information. Um, and, uh, and much of it is, uh, as, uh, the people that are really interested in species preservation um, are, uh, are especially concerned about the fish species, uh, even though uh, the land species uh, are, are uh, also down an enormous amount. Um, in fact, you know, there are a lot of biologists that are saying that we're, we're, we are now in an extinction, mm. uh, one of those periods in, uh, in uh, archaeological, uh, archaeological time that... Uh, like like when all the dinosaurs disappeared. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a die the die off is that strong now. Oh. And uh, and so uh, what does that say? What does that say to you, James? <laughs> if there's something you'd like to do with your life, now's the time. <laughs> and um, and uh, one thing that some people want to do is really go sailing, and so. Until until we get a a vaccine globally available, and let's face it, it may be several years. It may be never, but it may be several years before the global pandemic is sufficiently reduced to uh, uh, allow one to get on an airplane. And it's the airplane that caused it. Uh, damn it all, if the airplane hadn't been able to fly around so quick, it wouldn't have become global so fast. It would have yeah. become global anyway, but uh, but not so fast. You know, this this is an unprecedented predicament we've got ourselves in here. You know that wonderful guy, uh, 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 David Attenborough, the Brit that did all of wonderful nature sure. Yeah, he's been in the news lately, and uh, and uh, you know the most succinct thing that he's said has said about it as a naturalist is that uh, humanity has overrun the planet. That's his term. Yeah. Overrun, and yet there's there's still places on Earth where there's very few people around, but they're way to the north and way to the south. Yeah. Well, actually, Cuba is uh, it's the only place I've ever been in the tropics that does not have a, 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 a pathetic surplus of people. Um, Cuba is, uh, is, uh, is a wonderful example of, of what I, I think uh, I think Cuba has been through what the rest of the world is headed for mm. um, with this uh, thing they call the, the blockade or blockade, or we call it a, uh, I don't know what the hell they call it, really. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be a, 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 a trade barrier, but, um, well, it's a, just a drastic uh Political failure on both sides of the Straits of Florida, the predicament that Cuba is in. It's just ridiculous what's going on. But when Castro took over, 
and uh, decided to nationalize the uh, so much of the country. Um, a lot of Cubans left, of course. Uh, that's what <laughs> you want to see. How <laughs> who was it that said? I think it was Obama that said, "You want to see how how immigrants can succeed? Look at Miami." And hmm. uh, and so uh, uh, a lot of people left Cuba, and uh, and since then they've had a careful health program that has managed to. To some extent, uh, uh, restrain their population growth, and so it's it's a it's a great place because it's just not as most it's not like most places in the tropics that are just wall to wall people. It's funny we were just I was just talking to my daughter last night about sustainability and how Cuba has turned into uh, this huge sustainable area, and we were trying to understand why you know why has uh, ecotourism become such a thing there. And I think it has to do a lot with the you know a lot of people left, but the people who have stayed have been a lot more focused on taking care of themselves and not relying on the government because the government wasn't able to take care of them. So there's a lot more local small farm and gardening stuff like that. I think that yeah. is added to that. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I have a, a high regard for the Cubans. They had an extremely resilient. Uh, personality, uh, and as a matter of fact, in, in many of the places where Joanna and I have sailed and traveled, uh, we have we have found that it's uh, it's the uh, what we would call the underprivileged people who are the ones that are jiving and happy and music <laughs> all around and yeah. you know tremendous sense of sharing, sharing. My God, the generosity that was expressed by by threadbare people to us. I think it was partly because in, when we traveled in Scrimshaw, we were traveling as a family. You know, we had, mm -hmm. had the early teens with us. And, uh, and the people just, uh, they just opened up to us. They'd give, us, give you anything, you know. And here they are coming out of their clothes and shoes, you know. Uh. Just uh, Joanna gave away all of her clothes <laughs> several times. Wow. <laughs> but uh, uh, we also um, became fascinated with their textiles. I don't know whether I, I, I've, I've written about that. We have a textile collection, mostly from Central and a little bit of South America. And uh, and uh, when people make their own clothes, boy, it's it's really something, you know. Hmm. People who make their own clothes. Can you imagine? <laughs> I can't. And and talk about fashion. Wow, man! It's in their eyes, it's high fashion, <laughs> especially in Guatemala. Yeah. Well, Jim, we've had you on the phone for well over an hour. So oh no! We could talk to you all day, and how can that be? <laughs> be mindful of your time. Jeez, but I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, in my eyes, you're a treasure, and uh, I, I really thank you for sharing all your adventures through your books and online, and you just really have opened up my imagination and inspiration, and I just love your stories. I, it's such a talent that you have to both write and verbally share your stories. Well, thank you so much. I, I, I'll tell you why that's 
that's important to me now, you know. Um, I can still write, but it's very tedious. On a computer, I can write. I use a program called Zoom Text that allows me to magnify however much I need instantly by rolling the mouse wheel. And so um, I can I can still write, but it's real eyeball breaking work. Right, but yeah. uh, uh, ta- talking to uh, to a, an audio editing program like Audacity, um, which is a big, wonderful, free audio program designed for music editors. Um, but talking to uh, to Audacity, the thing is that you can see sound. Uh, hmm. You can see the the sine curves, the right. uh, the waves of uh, of what of what of what you're saying, and after a while you get so you can almost read those squiggly <laughs> curves. At least you can find the syllable that you want to take out. Huh. And so you can edit it just like you are editing a manuscript, um, but it's a lot easier on your eyes. Interesting. Or or on. Uh, uh, or on your typing ability, you know. <clears throat> and so uh, 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 to follow up on your your uh, uh, kind words, let me say that I hope to start up another podcast series in January. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I hope you do. Okay. And I sure wish good luck to you people. Uh, if, if you're looking for people who have uh, led extraordinary lives, I'll think about it. I could probably give you some some recommendations that guy bruce matlack i mentioned he was the first american windsurfer champion and the first uh world windsurfer champion and uh, went off to be uh a uh a uh a, a, a champion a, a real estate uh broker uh, won a national contest a month after month selling houses wow and ended up with enough money to now be homeless uh, <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> he he has an old motor home and an old trimaran and uh and uh and no no real abode <laughs> yeah he sounds like someone we we'd like to talk to yeah and anybody else you can think of please please share we love it well, gosh, there's there's a lot of them that are sailors. Uh, are you focusing on sailing? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just anybody. It's just sailing has been something that's interested mm-hmm. both of us. Well, boy, I sure wish I had a record of my, a recording of my dad telling FBI stories. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was too small to remember most of them. I remember a bit about some of them though. Well, okay, yeah. folks, you've been great. To, to uh, think of me, uh, I appreciate it very much, and I hope your listeners uh, I- enjoy my blab. Oh, they will. Okay. If nobody else I, I have. That's, okay. <laughs> Thank you. That's nice. Thank you very much. Yeah, best to you and your family. And your okay. Wife. Okay. So long, you guys. Take care. Bye. Bye.